0: I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you Behind the Music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's Bill Bukowski, and we're exploring one of the most popular symphonies ever written, Beethoven's Symphony No. 9, which is also known as the Choral Symphony because it's the first symphony that also uses a chorus. Now, we're all familiar with the uplifting ode to joy from the final movement, but if you don't know the earlier movements, then you are truly missing out. So stay with us and get to know the entire symphony and moments of Beethoven's genius. Bill, there are so many moments in classical music history that we talk a lot about, and perhaps one of the most iconic the biggest one in all of the lore is the premiere of Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9. We think of that moment where Beethoven's been on stage, he's been beating along the tempos with the conductor, but the symphony is finished and he doesn't know it. The audience is screaming and applauding, and a soprano, they have to go and turn him around to face the audience as the symphony is over.
1: I thought that was always a very touching and very visual. You can even see it. You can even see her sort of turning around and pointing in the direction of the audience going going wild.
0: There's that visual thing that we can all kind of identify with and just the tragedy of this music came from Beethoven's head and at the premiere, he basically could not hear it.
1: Yeah, which, uh, given some of the contemporary accounts you read of the performance, might have been a good thing. It was new music to folks back then and they weren't quite sure how to handle it.
0: New music, very difficult, and we'll be getting into that. And this, as we have said before, this Ode to Joy, Beethoven's Ninth, is a beacon of freedom. It's been, the Ode to Joy has been sung at protests in many different languages against uh, dictatorships. It's been performed at historical moments when we think of the Berlin Wall coming down in celebration, Bernstein, Bernstein. Um, had a performance, and he changed the words, didn't he? Freude, joy, to Freiheit, freedom.
1: Which was entirely appropriate uh, to that particular occasion, too. Also, um, this symphony is very popular in Japan as part of New Year's celebrations. Performances of Beethoven's Ninth are taken very, very seriously. It's it's a New Year's tradition there, much like the Viennese waltz is to the folks in Vienna.
0: That's true. I didn't know about that, actually, and I thought that was pretty fascinating. Like, every major orchestra is putting on a series of the Ninth Symphony around New Year's. It's, it's very impressive. And if you only know the Ode to Joy, the final moments of the symphony, you're definitely missing out. There is so much to get into. But a lot had to happen in Beethoven's life up to this premiere of his Symphony Number no. 9. So let's go back a little bit here. What was it like for Beethoven around this time in the in the 1820s?
1: Well, in the 1820s, Beethoven was, it was kind of a tough time in his life. He was composing. He was trying to get his music out, doing this with uh, his deafness. He was secluded. He hadn't really been having performances much in years. Tastes in Vienna were changing too, John. Um, There was different music coming in, and, and it was music that he wasn't really crazy about.
0: A rise of Italian opera. People were the audiences were really loving, like, Rossini, weren't they?
1: Right. Rossini was was the big thing there. And Beethoven was sort of almost passé, I guess. And maybe he was thinking that he was been pushed aside. He was actually thinking about decamping from Vienna and taking his business elsewhere.
0: And that is kind of part of the lore of the Symphony number no. nine, in that it wasn't he wasn't looking to have it performed in uh, Vienna. It was originally commissioned by the London Philharmonic Society. And of course, Beethoven's health was quite ill. He could not make it to London. And then he even considered premiering it in berlin,
1: yeah. and And here was the thing, too, that I think is also very touching. Beethoven had a lot of friends and supporters in Vienna. And they wanted to keep him there. They knew the best way to keep him there was to make sure that he was comfortable and appreciated.
0: And they wrote this letter, a, a group of patrons and leaders in the arts in the area. This is a letter that I think would make anyone feel appreciated. I'll just read a couple of bits here and paraphrase. But they wrote this in February of 1824. And it's kind of like half ransom letter. Half locker room speech, half a general speech before going into war. There's a lot of elements that play in here. But it starts with, To hear Ludwig van Beethoven, a small group of disciples and lovers of the arts, steps forward today from the large circle of respectful admirers, surrounding your genius in its second native city, to express desires long cherished, to give modest voice to requests long restrained. And that's the they actually have a kind of a series of requests here. Much later on, they say, withhold no longer from the public, deny no longer to the suffering sense of greatness the performance of the latest masterpieces from your hand, because they knew he was writing music. He had his Misa Solemnis performed around this time too, right? That's
1: right. You know,
0: and, and listening to that, it's like, you know, wow, how could you refuse? And they, well, you can't refuse this either. They say, we know that in the garden of your glorious and unexcelled symphonies, a new blossom glows. And they also say, disappoint our expectations no longer. Almost saying kind of like, look, we've supported you a lot over these years. You've got something big. It's time to have it done. Right. and Let's hear it. And they do mention something that you were kind of talking about and that he was... Secluded, and a lot of people in the arts perhaps were feeling regretful that these years have gone by without seeing Beethoven, and they've not actually checked in on him. They said, should we tell you with what deep regret your seclusion has long been felt? And they say, we need your voice, your music here. And talking about general, they say, only you can secure victory. They are very passionate in Vienna for the arts, and a couple dozen people signed this. It was presented to Beethoven after a dinner. And apparently he was very, very touched by this. No,
1: who couldn't be touched by that? I mean, they obviously wanted him around and they wanted to hear what he was going to come up with. This is a really great incentive.
0: And just a few months later, in May, May 7th of 1824, that's when he premiered his Symphony No. 9. Some composers have written these masterpieces in just days or weeks. You think of some symphonies by Mozart, um, Handel's Messiah. Beethoven... He wrote it over a couple of years, but really, these themes and ideas were stewing with him for decades. He was a composer that often went back to old melodies, would revise, renew something, and always seemed kind of um, like hyperbole, that he remembered every single melody he had ever thought of. Now, I'm starting to think that he might be right with this assessment.
1: Yeah, that's amazing recall.
0: Now, if we go back to 1808, this might sound familiar. This is his Choral Fantasy. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Very familiar. I think if you just grabbed random people off the street and played that for them, they might say, oh, that sounds like that, you know, Beethoven Symphony Number no. 9. Right, right. But I, it goes back even further, I think. If we go back to 1795 now, when Beethoven is, what, like 25 years old? He writes this song, and halfway through, we hear this.
1: Well, Beethoven knew the value of a good tune, that's for sure.
0: He did. And it's just, it's such a simple tune. And that's something that Beethoven knew how to do. He knew how to write a hook. Now, I think in that song, he's talking about unrequited love. Now we have it in Freedom. But it's just extraordinary that this little melody from his 20s evolves into the choral fantasy and evolves into this symphony number nine. The poetry was also familiar to Beethoven as well, The Ode to Joy by Schiller. It was written in 1785, and I believe he's Beethoven had written it down, just little lines here and there in the margins of papers scribbling down, also in his own diary.
1: Yeah, it was something that he had known from when he was very, very young, and he kept it with him. It obviously made a big impression on him, and he'd been wanting to try to set it to music and to find the right setting, like a jeweler trying to find the proper setting for a particular stone. And there was the song that we just heard, and of course the choral fantasy, which sounds like sort of a warm-up for what he wanted to do in the ninth.
0: I like what you just said there, a jeweler, they have this precious jewel, but they're finding the right setting for it.
1: Right, that's exactly what what I think this is, that's what's, what's happening here.
0: And the orchestra is also large as well. We have one of the largest orchestras, I think the largest he ever wrote for. We have instruments that don't even play until the final movement, like piccolo, contrabassoon, some percussion instruments like bass drum, triangle cymbals, even trombones only play in two of the four movements. And of course, we know the chorus and the solo singers, they only appear in the final movement as well. So let's dive right into this music. There's so much more to know about Beethoven's Symphony No. 9, but we'll get into that right after this. Classical Breakdown is made possible by Classical WETA. Join us for the music anytime, day or night. To listen live, just go to our website, classicalweta.org, or download our app. It's free in the App Store. Okay, Bill, we have here to dive into the music, one of my favorite recordings, one we hear a lot on Classical WETA, and that is the Revolutionary and Romantic Orchestra with the Monteverdi Choir, John Elliott Gardner conducting, and soloists Luba Organosova, Anna Sophie von Otter, Anthony Rolf Johnson, and Gilles Kashimai. This is a great recording. One reason I love it especially is because there are so many lines, so many inner voices in this symphony that are just pure genius, that get lost sometimes in, in other recordings. I think this one shows them off quite well.
1: I think you're right, yeah.
0: And Bill, we have to start right from the beginning. In fact, you and I did a few episodes on what is a symphony. And in those episodes, we talked about the Mannheim crescendo, this idea of an orchestra starting from nothing and then growing to a large point together. And I think the opening here takes that to a new level.
1: It's interesting as we talk about all these, how much of an influence Beethoven was, and this is actually one of the most influential passages in music. Composers that came after Beethoven would copy this sort of something from nothing, this sort of weird amorphous beginning that eventually coalesces into a sound or a theme. Every symphony by Bruckner starts this way. Anton Bruckner, Uh, came in years later after Beethoven, and he had three heroes, God, Wagner, and Beethoven, and not necessarily in that order. And all of Bruckner's symphonies pretty much begin this way. Gustav Mahler used this in his symphonies as well.
0: That's absolutely right. And it starts off kind of ambiguous. I've read people talking about, it sounds like this has always existed, and now it's just bubbling up to the surface and we're discovering it like some kind of fossil.
1: Or creation, chaos, and then... Creating something,
0: the chaos is created by some of the strings. It sounds kind of like a rumbling sound. That's because we have strings playing six tuplets, basically playing six notes for every beat. So da 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 da, and when they do that, and they're playing so soft, it gives this kind of not uncomfortable feeling, but you don't know where you are. And then the other notes so far that have been played. You don't know, is this in major? Is this in minor? Where are we going here? And then Beethoven just hits you over the head with it. The rhythm is absolutely propelling in this symphony, but the opening kind of repeats itself. But before it repeats, to me, also maybe like creation and chaos, it folds into itself like a star and starts all over again. It seems like there's a lot of moments like that in this symphony that we're going to hear where he's doing something, doing something, and then says, you know what, wait, no, we have to go back, let's do it different.
1: Yeah, and that's fascinating. It's almost like he hasn't quite worked it out yet. And you hear that throughout the symphony. It's almost like he's stopping and saying, wait a minute, let me try it again. Or let me rephrase that, something like that.
0: That's it, let me rephrase that. Because in this this next phrase, actually, for me... I can't get it out of my head. It sounds like Johann Sebastian Bach. There's this moment, maybe because it's in D minor and it's so strong in that key, it reminds me of moments of Johann Sebastian Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor. I'll play this for you. Maybe it'll make sense after we hear it.
1: That's interesting. I never noticed that before.
0: It's uncanny, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Part of it is the the rhythm that they're using, um, the strings tying together how they do that. But it sounds, to me, it just sounds like Bach. And like creation, when you're mentioning in chaos, there's this turmoil that returns. Listen for the inner voices because there's moments where and the horns, for instance, just kind of pops out with this happy sound, and then it's, it's washed away. It does sound like creation kind of bubbling up and figuring things out. Right. The ending to this movement is so... Resolute, and of course, we're just getting a taste of little things things to listen for in each movement. But the ending, in fact, all of the openings and endings to all of the movements in the symphony to me seem extraordinary. Um, Here's the end of the first movement. It is so resolute. It's so strong that it could almost be the end of an entire piece.
1: Right, right. But at the same time, you're wondering, where is this taking us?
0: Where is it taking us? Because we've gone in all kinds of different directions. He ends it with this resolute... um, Flourish. Flourish, that's it. And then he goes into the second movement. And for me, I'm like, ah, okay, let's, let's have a nice adagio, something to digest what we just heard. But... We get this scherzo that starts explosive, and it starts in a way that is very similar to the opening movement.
1: It's interesting. You mentioned scherzo, and we need a slow movement. This is fascinating, because this, usually after a movement like the first, you want something that's you know, a, a bit of a relief or something. And a scherzo usually is like a relief after a contemplative passage but not here. Putting it here after a very unsettled first movement that offers no relief, this actually heightens the tension. Once more, Beethoven is upsetting the musical apple cart.
0: Yeah. He does that a lot in this movement. And what I'm talking about, it's kind of like the opening to the first movement. It's the opposite in terms of just the volume. It's so loud and bombastic. But the first notes, we don't know if we're major or minor yet. We just have this D, and then an A, and then in between, it's the timpani coming in with this F that makes it minor, and it's just, um, it's in your face. Now, one thing that he's also doing in this movement that is going against the norm, and that is the rhythm. We have in the music, we, he actually writes some things in. He writes ritmo di tre batute and ritmo di quattro batute, so... We get a little technical here, but the scherzo was in three. It's very fast, you know, one, two, three, one, two, three. But we can group those measures into larger groups. So it's like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. But we can also do it in four. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. It's just little things like that that just kind of throw you off. And then he puts both of these things together for a very, very intense kind of sound.
1: You know, relentless is a really good word. It never stops. It's almost, I've always often listened to this and it sounds like a dance of death, almost like a tarantella. It just keeps going and going and going inexorably, relentlessly. It just keeps going. That's, that's the impression that I've always had from this movement.
0: I hear that too. And you mentioned before about the premiere, the performance. People loved it, but the playing wasn't so great. We hear that. That is very, very difficult. The parts are difficult by themselves. This symphony is very hard to put together, especially the first time. Today, it's it's standard. We've all played it so many times. We know it. But back then, this was brand new. And trying to fit all that stuff we just heard, have it all fit together, was an extraordinary challenge.
1: It's another, two example of just how there's no performance of this work that could ever be ordinary. No. You've got to be on your toes.
0: And they're all different. If you think, oh, I don't like this movement, it's not for me listen to a different recording, it may change for you completely. The ending to this one is also just absolutely fantastic. He's just setting the stage. Now it's in my head. Bruckner and Mahler with those endings. That is right. such a Mahler kind of ending as well.
1: Yeah. As a matter of fact, the very ending of Mahler's first symphony, it ends with that same cadence from the second movement, the um, That's
0: exactly what I hear. Yep. But that brings us to the third movement here, which now we finally get our adagio, something to sit back in our seats and kind of absorb. But this one starts, again, The openings and endings to these movements are, in my opinion, revolutionary. The opening here is kind of unusual. What's a little unusual about it is like so many of the things that are unusual that is the the rhythm in this part it doesn't start on a downbeat it starts on an upbeat and then it builds up with everyone coming in on the following upbeat
1: the other thing too that's interesting about this movement um, even just with the sound considering the two movements that preceded it and the turmoil and um, the relentless forward motion and then all of a sudden it's like everything stops and it's almost like stop rest Sit down, lie down, take a nap, you know. If you're not really paying that much attention, you can almost miss this movement. And that's a real shame, too, because it's extraordinarily beautiful.
0: It feels like time is just suspended. Right. And it takes time literally kind of being suspended. Like the big theme comes in, but it is not for a little bit, almost two minutes later when this extraordinary theme comes in. It takes its time getting there, which is,
1: like I said, if you... If you do sack out for a little bit, you're going to miss it.
0: What makes it so fascinating is, well, one, listen to the inner voices, the things that are happening behind. They make the whole thing happen. But this little melody, it's it's beautiful, but it feels like it's moving forward. It's kind of walking forward. And part of that, again, is the rhythm that Beethoven's using. There aren't a lot of downbeats. The strings may come in on, on an upbeat, and then when they have a forward-moving line... It comes after a downbeat and then leads into a downbeat. So when you finally get to it, on the downbeat of next of each measure or whatever, when you finally get to it, it's cathartic and it keeps it moving. So you're not just kind of stagnant.
1: Right, exactly, which would be the death knell for this particular symphony. It has to keep progressing forward. That's what Beethoven. Beethoven is leading us and he wants us to follow.
0: And he brings us to a moment where it's just kind of a solo moment for the wind section. And again, now you got me worried. People might just kind of miss out on some of this stuff. You can't miss this. When the winds come in and the strings are just kind of a little pizzicato in the background, it's an extraordinary moment that will kind of listen in two parts. For now, listen to what's also happening in the horn, the low horn specifically. It's all beautiful, but that low horn part, it is very difficult. We talk about virtuosic playing, and we often think, oh, that's high, loud, and fast. Right. But for some instruments, like playing low horn, that's virtuosic, playing that steady. And when it goes down to that low note, it changes the color of everything, and it's the whole support system.
1: Right, right.
0: He has a solo for the fourth horn player here. And this one this one sounds different depending on the recording you're listening to this recording they're using the natural horn so there are no valves we've talked about this before they have to use their hand in the bell to manipulate the air coming out to um, get some of the notes out that don't exist naturally on the instrument and of course they're they're using their lips but it's one of the great moments of for the horn in all of Beethoven's music in this recording it kind of goes by quick, and that's okay, too. But there are other recordings as well that use the valved horn, and it they just take their absolute sweet time with it. Mm. There's a section here that I i love it, but I'm, I'm not sure how to kind of think of it. It's kind of like a fanfare moment where trumpets come in, there's timpani, and it's just this massive moment that doesn't seem like it would fit in with what we've heard so far in this um, third movement.
1: This is an important sound, an important passage, because you need to remember this, because it's going to figure in later
0: on. Some people say that, oh, it's Beethoven made a mistake, which- Really? Okay, yeah. They say, oh, it should actually be suddenly much faster. It's a fanfare, it should be much faster. And some say, oh, you need to add the timpani to all of it, that Beethoven wasn't able at the time to write what he wanted. so. Today, we should kind of fill in the blanks. Now, we do that a lot in music, filling in where composers weren't able to do something. But here with Beethoven, I'm not sure that really flies because if we think about his Symphony Number 5, that moment where the bassoon takes over for the horn because the horn could not play that part. Basically, what I'm saying here is there was opportunity here for Beethoven to do all those things. He could have added more timpani. Timpani could also change their tuning. At this time, all of those things could have already happened, I think, in Beethoven's time. So today to change it, I'm just not so sure.
1: Well, I think the other thing you have to do, too, is think back on the music that we've heard thus far in this symphony. Beethoven taking all this material and sort of laying it out and spreading it out and then creating some order out of this chaos and trying to find a way to take all this disparate material and make it come together and coalesce into the symphony, where he wants to take us. And in this softer passage, this slow movement, he's doing the same thing, but at a different pace.
0: I like that. And the ending is, again, I love the endings here. I know I've said that a couple of times, but it's absolutely beautiful. And he does something that I think some composers would kind of miss out on. It's so small, but I think it's just, it adds to the moment. He could have just had the note sustain at the end, right? Right. But it sounds, first it kind of sounds like a ball bouncing. Bum, 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 bum.
1: Yeah, or the the uh, it also reminds me of the opening of the violin concerto. Okay. It starts the same with that little pulse. Bum, bum, bum.
0: That's right. Beethoven has used the timpani and that's why I think before that when we heard that part with a, what I call the fanfare, where if you wanted more timpani, he would have added it because in the violin concerto, also at the end, I, was, I think there's like a little condensa moment for timpani in some of his music. He knew what he was doing with timpani. Mm-hmm. That brings us to the fourth movement, which is probably the most heard, the most familiar one. That is when we get all the singers coming in and the extra extra instruments. Let's enjoy just the opening here.
1: see, that's shocking. After that dreamlike movement that we just heard comes this great sort of roar or blast or raspberry from, you know, bringing us right back to where we were in the opening of the symphony, it's like he's grabbing us by the lapels and saying, hold it.
0: It's one of those moments, if you don't know what's about to happen, you might jump out of your seat. Right. And I think this movement has a lot of operatic qualities to it. And it's funny because Beethoven wasn't a big opera composer, right? He wrote one, like what, one and a half operas, really? And there's so many moments in here that are just, to me, operatic, starting right from the beginning where we have that explosive opening and then the low strings, like a recitative. It's a solo moment for them to do with the tempo and direction as they please.
1: Yeah, it's a sense of drama, too. And Beethoven, of course, in all of his works has a sense of drama.
0: And I'm sure it was super dramatic in that rehearsal because... When we say it was difficult to put together, that passage right there is one reason. When all of a sudden the rhythm is kind of not so strict and you're free to do what you want, but you're doing it as a section, everyone has to agree on where each note is going to happen.
1: Especially since that opening note sounds like a mistake. Right. it's, It's kind of slurred a little bit.
0: And we get a moment where, of course, in this last movement he's starting to bring in themes that we've already heard before, and we get a moment where it sounds like the very opening of the symphony is popping back in. The timpani's grabbing you by the lapel, as you said. The uh, lower strings have this kind of free moment, but before that... That opening again, da, 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 that kind of rumbling sound of creation coming back. Right. We have, and one reason why I think this is also kind of operatic it's like a conversation, a battle between winds and strings.
1: It's almost as if the low strings are, like, trying to put some order into this. The music sort of is going back to the previous movements that we heard, but the low strings are sort of stopping things and interjecting. But we don't know what yet.
0: We don't know what. And all so far in the symphony, we've heard rhythm driving things forward, even in the slow movement. And here he's put everything to a stop. And the, as you said, the lower strings are trying to create some order. And then, I think the lower strings, they find some order. And we get the opening of that theme we all know and love, one that stewed with Beethoven for decades right
1: and what's remarkable in this symphony is this is the first time you are hearing this this doesn't sound like anything that came before before this happens we're hearing snatches of the previous movements but this time he introduces a theme a completely new one from right out of the blue
0: and he does it so soft when you see this in concert it is such a soft moment you have it makes you lean into the stage then the upper strings join in and we're going to listen to that now and like I've kind of been saying, listen for the inner voices, especially hear the bassoons. This piece it moves me every time I hear, it, and that's something we can't take for granted. I've heard this; we've heard this a million times. It strikes me every single time because, especially those bassoons, those inner voices, so rich, so powerful, so in, so intrinsic to what's happening on stage. Beethoven could not hear this, of course. Although he was deaf, he could hear the music. He could hear the what he wanted in his head, but that is very, very complicated. That is not something. That's not—it's so complicated, it's hard to believe that Beethoven was just able to put this together like that. I'm almost at a loss for
1: words. (laughs) Good music will do that to you, and this is a perfect example.
0: And then he's slowly building this up, and we have the full orchestra joining in for this theme. So how far are we into the symphony now? We're like fifty minutes right. into the symphony. And just imagine at this point there was no symphony with a chorus in it. That was not a thing. Right. And you're sitting there in the hall, it's been 50, 45, forty five, fifty minutes, and no one has moved from their chairs, you know, the soloist and, and the chorus. They're all still sitting there. I imagine people are wondering, well, what are they doing? Are they gonna sing?
1: Well, and yes, and you're and you're hearing this this beautiful tune, this unforgettable tune that's coming in for the first time, uh, bringing some light into the darkness that we've been listening to for the last 50 minutes.
0: And what's also something to think about is Staging was slightly different back then. The orchestra was a little bit smaller, but the chorus today, when you go hear this, the chorus is behind the orchestra and the soloists are out in front. At this time, the chorus was actually in front of the orchestra as well with the solo singers. So they are right there at the front of the stage or at the front of right where the concert hall is there. And this brings us to now, of course, the moment where voices enter. It all starts with a baritone. Singer standing up and saying, "Oh, friends, not these sounds. Let us instead strike up more pleasing and more joyful ones." That is the start to the um, the text, the lyrics. But that is something Beethoven wrote. He added that in.
1: You know, and it's also interesting too that it's the low voice that interrupts the proceedings and has something to say, like the low strings that we heard
0: earlier. Right, it fits right along. Yep. Inside that, but it's now that you say that, it's like, well, it's such a beautiful delicate melody. Maybe you'd think a high soprano would come in. But no, it it is this low voice. So before we go further, let's hear the words of this poem, because I think for a lot of us, it kind of gets lost. It's sung in German, but the text here is extraordinary. And we'll hear it now as read by Nicole Lacroix.
2: Oh, friends, not these sounds. Let us instead strike up more pleasing and more joyful ones. Joy, beautiful spark of divinity. Daughter from Elysium, we enter burning with fervor, heavenly being, your sanctuary. Your magic brings together what custom has sternly divided. All men shall become brothers, wherever your gentle wings hover. Whoever has been lucky enough to become a friend to a friend. Whoever has found a beloved wife, let him join our songs of praise. Yes, and anyone who can call one soul his own on this earth. Any who cannot, let them slink away from this gathering in tears. Every creature drinks in joy at nature's breast. Good and evil alike follow her trail of roses. She gives us kisses and wine, a true friend, even in death. Even the worm was given desire, and the cherub stands before God. Gladly, just as his sons hurtle through the glorious universe, so you, brothers, should run your course joyfully, like a conquering hero. Be embraced, you millions. This kiss is for the whole world. Brothers, above the canopy of stars, must dwell a loving father. Do you bow down before him, you millions? Do you sense your creator, O world? Seek him. Above the canopy of stars, he must dwell beyond the stars.
0: And I'll be honest with you, Bill, I'm not so familiar with the text either. Right. I
1: don't know that it, that uh, many people are. Is anybody still reading Schiller's poetry now in the 21st century? I don't know.
0: Maybe reading it for, you know, studies and, and things like that. But the text is extraordinary. You can see why Beethoven loved it, why it was with him for most of his life since he was writing it down in his 20s. So let's go ahead and hear where this all happens. Something you said before is now sticking with me where the low strings are trying to, you know, set order amidst the chaos. I'm hearing that now with the baritone because the words are pleasant, you know, joyful. We want joyful sounds. Oh, friends, not these sounds. But it's very stern.
1: Right. And the baritone is actually using the same notes that the lower strings used in their interjections earlier. So it fits. It would have to be the baritone that is the first voice that we hear if you're going to start of you know the, the vocal part
0: that's right the strings before they the low strings they foreshadow this incredible moment and it's not too long after this the baritone goes right into singing the again very very soft what we know as this ode to joy theme we're going to listen to it now and again listen to what's happening in the background <laughs> I just love that oboe solo. Yeah, it's beautiful. There's so many moments in the symphony, you just kind of wonder, why, where did this sound come from? Or it's just, it sounds like he almost threw everything into this, like um, everything but the kitchen sink. We get this massive dissonant chord. Again, I just love how I'm just unbelievably impressed for Beethoven and his being able to hear all of this in his head, not using a keyboard to, you know, really make sure, oh, yeah, this is exactly what I want, this huge dissonant chord, and then a moment where the contrabassoon comes in, just kind of tooting out some low notes. And then we get this very colorful march, It seems so out of place.
1: Yeah, it's a part of it too is that, you know, the symphony sort of resolves itself into this song, this Ode to Joy, and the chorus really takes off and the orchestra takes off. And you get the impression that finally the composer is starting to have a little fun with this theme.
0: It is a lot of fun. I like that. It's this little Turkish march. Yeah, jaunty little Turkish military
1: march that all of the Viennese would have been familiar with. I can just see everybody in the
0: audience, when they first heard this, just big smiles breaking out on their faces. And this fun moment then goes into some very intense moments as well, because we know that Ode to Joey theme, but there's so much happening in between that, like this kind of stormy, tense situation with the strings. It's almost like Beethoven with his brotherhood and with freedom, but he's also telling us, look, life is full of other experiences. Sometimes that's pain, as we've heard in this symphony so far, with with chaos and with tension and with sadness, that life is well-rounded. There's all kinds of experiences that you have to get through.
1: Right, and he's reminding us by bringing back that triple meter from the scherzo.
0: There's a moment here that is just again, I, it's hard to say extraordinary so many times, but it is extraordinary, where we get to this text where it is, be embraced, you millions, this kiss is for the whole world, where the orchestra seems to just come to a stop for this moment. This is a moment where now I'm listening to this and it sounds like this is kind of the first time where it sounds like sacred music. Right. Like it's meant for the, the church where he's saying, be embraced. This is for the entire world, you know, above the canopy of stars must dwell a loving father. He's thinking of something larger than himself.
1: And he's gone beyond his own time, in essence, and he's speaking to the future.
0: Oh, I like that, because he is speaking to the future, and it's a moment that cannot be rushed by with that triple meter being propelled forth. It needs this time where it just is within itself. Again, with these sustained chords that Beethoven used, sometimes they're dissonant, sometimes they're not. They're very suspenseful. This one, this sustained chord, leads us into the final section, and it sounds quite dreamy. And if you listen really closely, you hear the underneath, there's the rhythm in the music and then it just kind of slows down and then just stops and sustains before it jumps into that next section.
1: Before it picks back up again, yes. Mm -hmm.
0: We've heard some pretty extravagant, large moments here in Beethoven's Ninth. It pushes you forward, it brings you back, it pushes you forward again. There is this just tremendous moment where the voices and orchestra build back up for the final moments. I think we don't appreciate enough that we're now over like an hour into the symphony, right? And we've—you're never bored. Things are always moving forward, even when he pulls the tempo back. There's always this forward motion, and that is so extraordinarily hard, and especially over this long amount of time.
1: To sustain that over that time and have nobody get fidgety is just remarkable. It's a remarkable accomplishment, and it's one of the things that I think is another draw for this as listeners that that we come to this symphony because he never does anything expected. Even with this choral finale it's going in a lot of different directions, but all with this continued sustained glorious sound.
0: Well you said they're unexpected. Because when I was listening to this uh recently and it's hard to put it down, I just can't stop listening to it when you're you know you're preparing for something. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the first time where this is happening, a big chorus with a symphony. This doesn't sound like the first time. It sounds like the hundredth time. its I would think, you know, it would be something more simple, more together, not something that's starting and stopping or doing so much with the rhythm with just the voices themselves. It sounds like it's the hundredth time, not the first time for a symphony.
1: Right. And thats that's a remarkable thing, too. I never really... You know, I never considered that. That's fascinating. That's a fascinating thought. I'm thinking in terms of trying to get back to the way people hearing this for the very first time. And What you're in essence saying is that you are always hearing it for the very first time. And I think that that's true.
0: And, of course, it was probably very intimidating for composers in decades and a century later to write a symphony with a chorus in it because now, oh, my gosh, well, Beethoven did this, what am I going to do?
1: Well, he sets the bar pretty high.
0: I love the end to this symphony it's not like a lot of other endings to his symphonies it's one that just drives all the way to the end there's not a long amount of time just kind of you know sustaining one chord that you sometimes find which is fantastic but this seems just unique to itself It's hard to hear that and then not hear an applause afterwards. Right.
1: Yeah, it's just begging for applause, isn't
0: it? But It's just extraordinary the way the piccolo rises up towards the end. And again, that's Beethoven's fantastic orchestration. We've barely heard the piccolo in the symphony. It's only in the last movement, and it only jumps out at certain sections. But when it does, it grabs you, and it just changes the whole texture of it. So, Bill, why do you think this symphony, all of these years later, still speaks to not just to a few people, but to everyone?
1: Well, I think what what Beethoven is saying here is a universal thing. All men shall be brothers, is the direct quote from the ode. All of us shall be one. All shall be one, all of one soul. And I think it speaks to us in every age and at every time. And I think it speaks to us now, too. And you can even think back to when Beethoven was writing this. We, we mentioned early on his life at that time was very, very messy. His music, he was having trouble getting his music staged, and he was in this awful legal battle with his sister-in-law over the custody of his nephew. And the music itself kind of sounds messy as it's, as it's progressing. And I think what he's trying to say is that out of all the messiness in all of our lives at any given time, The one thing that we have to remember is there's still this divine spark. It's almost a mystical moment that Beethoven's trying to put off to us. And it reminded me of a story, if I can, of Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk and writer. In 1958, he was in Louisville, Kentucky. He was in the shopping district. He was running errands for his brothers at at the Abbey. And all of a sudden, he was struck, and he said... I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people and that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. And he finishes by saying, If only everybody could realize this, but it can't be explained there is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. In Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9, he's reminding all of us that we are all walking around shining like the sun.
0: Wow. I love that. I mean, that's that's exactly it. I'm one who thinks about the terrifying scale of the observable universe in space and to think that we are just on this little rock flying around this, you know, star and that this music was created that you know we're just these little rock these little people on here but we're all together we're all one and that story just outlines it perfectly
1: right you know in, in all of this wide vast universe there's one of each of us and all of us have that spark of the divine
0: well thank you so much bill do you have anything more for beethoven's ninth i want to go back and listen to it again from the beginning i think i will too Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any comments or ideas for episodes, send them to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA.